0: We have been following the life of Christ more or less chronologically through the New Testament. And in the last few messages, we have seen the growing hostility of the scribes and the Pharisees towards the ministry of Christ. This morning, I would have you look in Matthew, the 10th chapter. We're going to look at a section of scripture from verse 16 down to verse 31. Matthew 10:16 through 31 Behold I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves But beware of men for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved." But when they persecute you in this city, flee unto another. For verily I say unto you, Ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be like his master, and the servant like his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub... How much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hidden that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach upon the housetops. And fear not them who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. For the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is in the midst of sending out the twelve, the disciples into the cities of Israel. We looked the last time I was with you in verses 1 through 15 at the special instructions that he gave them for this mission. But notice that this is couched in the language of the expectation of hostility, and we have seen that hostility develop. It started back there when Jesus pronounced that man sick of the palsy, when Jesus pronounced that man's sins forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees who were present suddenly uh, had a theological problem. They said, wait a minute, this man has blasphemed. Only God can forgive sin. And yet they could not deny the miracle that Jesus said, so that you'll know that I have power on earth to forgive sin. He turned to the man and said, rise up and walk. And the man rose up. So they could not deny the miracle. But they could not, on the other hand, come to grips with the fact that this one was indeed the Son of God with power on earth to forgive sin. A little later we find them getting bent out of shape, as we put it, with his selection of Matthew the tax collector, the publican, to be one of the twelve, and then especially the great banquet that Matthew threw for his friends, and of course the only friends a publican's going to have is other publicans, sinners, that sort. And so Jesus sat at dinner with this motley crew of publicans and sinners, and the scribes and Pharisees began to criticize, especially to his disciples, saying, you know, look at him, he's eating with publicans and sinners. And Jesus, of course, took them to task. For saying, don't you understand the scripture? Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And then, of course, a little later, there were the problems of Jesus' healing on the Sabbath day. The man with the withered hand, Jesus said, stretch it forth. It's interesting that in that incident, you begin to see Jesus angry at the scribes and Pharisees. They would have more pity, more compassion on a dumb animal than they would on this human man who is suffering. And so there's this problem. You understand the situation the scribes and Pharisees are in. They're sort of fighting a losing battle here. We we know this man cannot be of God, cannot be the Messiah, and yet on the other hand, he's doing all these miracles. And you'll notice just previous to our chapter, back in chapter 9, look in verse 32 of chapter 9, and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil and when the devil was cast out, the dumb spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. We've never seen anything like it. But the Pharisees said, he casteth out demons, or devils, through the prince of the devils. You see, if you cannot deny the miracle, then deny the power by which the miracle was performed. Of course he's casting out demons. It's because he himself is possessed of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And of course, it is that blasphemous assertion that our Lord goes on to instruct concerning the unpardonable sin, blaspheming the very witness of the Holy Spirit of God towards the Messiah. But let us come back to our situation today in Matthew 10. And I would have you notice that in the first 15 verses of this chapter, the directions, the instructions that Jesus is giving his 12 disciples are peculiar and pertain to the mission at hand. It was a mission that was rather narrow in its scope. He was sending them not out into the world, as he will do a little later, but just to the nation, the the cities of Israel to announce to them that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But starting in what we read this morning, in verse 16, you see that the scope begins to widen. There are things that he mentions here that pertain to things that they really didn't face on this first mission, things that they would face later. In fact, in Luke's gospel, you'll find in Luke chapter 10, in the first verses there, the same more or less instructions that he gives here in Matthew 10, in the first 15 verses, but you'll see that Luke records this material later in Luke 21. So in other words, Luke has divorced or separated this material. Perhaps it was given on two different occasions, whereas Matthew has joined them together. But clearly what we've read in our text this morning pertain to other circumstances, a wider view of the work of the twelve apostles for notice in verse 18 for example he says they'll be brought before governors and kings for his sake now we know of no such thing occurring on this rather limited mission among the cities of israel that took place during the three year ministry of our lord but certainly this thing did take place later when the apostles went out into the world and for instance the apostle paul gave witness before king agrippa What we're doing here, in other words, is moving away from the limited particular mission of the twelve in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry to the broader ministry to which all Christians are ultimately sent, in other words, to things that pertain to our mission in our day. Especially the expectation of opposition. Do you notice in verses 16 through 23, the fact that they are going to be opposed, that they will face hostility, that they will face persecution, is very clearly expressed in the words of our Lord. Now put, this, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Wouldn't you have every reason at this point to be quite optimistic about what's going to happen with this mission that you're being sent out to? I mean, consider that your job is to go announce to the nation of Israel, who has been living in an expectation of the appearance of the Messiah, you are to go and to announce to this nation the beginning of Messiah's kingdom. And furthermore, you are to go in the demonstration of Messiah's power. Notice that they're not just sent out to announce, but they're to go to heal the sick, cast out devils, do the same works that Jesus himself has been doing. Do you get the picture? If you're a disciple at this point in time, you you would think, man, this is a piece of cake. Well, this is like selling candy to kids. This is like selling ice water in the desert or... Life rafts on the Titanic. I mean, you know, what, what, what are people looking for? The, we've got it. This is a can't-miss operation. But notice in Matthew 10, in verse 14 and 15, it becomes clear from the words here that not everybody is going to receive their message. Some will not hear their words, and they are to wipe off the dust of their feet from those cities that refuse them. But what is presented as a possibility in those verses becomes dead certainty in the verses we've read this morning. Look at the language of the verses we just got through reading. Look at the certainty of the opposition that they will face. Look at verse 17. They will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you. Verse 18. Ye shall be brought before governors and kings. Verse 19, when they deliver you up. You notice he didn't say no if they do, maybe they will. When they do, when they deliver you up. Verse 21, the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. Verse 22, ye shall be hated of all men. Verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee unto another. Do, do you understand the language here? Jesus is not just saying, boys, you're going to go out there and... First of all, he tells them that not everybody's going to hear what you've got to say. And here's how I want you to, you know, and I'm sure if you're a disciple, you say, well, you know, more." let them be like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, in the judgment. That, that's good for them. But now our Lord, in very clear language, opens the eyes of the disciples to what they're to expect. And the picture is not very pretty. Now, what is the problem here? Why? Do we have the certainty of opposition in the world? Well, look back at the little word picture that Jesus gave them in verse 16. And being one who used to raise sheep, these words mean a great deal to me. Jesus says, Behold, I send you forth a sheep in the midst of wolves. I've seen coyotes, pack of coyotes came in and killed some of my sheep. Seen coyotes carrying off my lambs in their mouths. Sheep, one thing they're better at than being dumb is being helpless. They have no power against foes. They have no defense. They're goners when you put a sheep in the midst of wolves. That's a very vivid picture if you know anything about sheep. I can just imagine a sheep standing in the middle of a wolf pack. And say if ever there was some being whose days were numbered. That's talking about somebody who's a dead duck. And notice that the problem is one of nature. I mean sheep by nature eat sheep food. Grass. Hay. Grain. Wolves, by nature, eat sheep. Sheep is their food. You'll notice then that the problem is that the wolf is that way, not by choice, but by nature. He doesn't choose to eat sheep. It's his nature to eat sheep. And so it is, by the way, with man. (coughs) Excuse me. And conversion, by the way, is not convincing a bunch of wolves to make a decision to be vegetarians. Conversion is the transformation of a ravenous wolf like a Saul of Tarsus into a meek, gentle lamb like Paul the Apostle. Salvation involves a change of nature. And so, in other words, this is just what's going to happen if you put sheep in the middle of wolves. Just as we say, let nature take its course, and wolves are going to be having sheep for supper. You'll notice, of course, the problem is not wolves, it's wolf-like men. Did you notice verse 17? Beware of men. Watch out for man. The most dangerous critter that you're going to run into in this world walks on two legs and is men who are ravenous by nature. So in these verses we see the dead certainty of the fact that Christ's disciples will be confronted with opposition. Let me hasten on to verses 24 and 25 where we begin to have explained for us the reason for this opposition. Now, I've often wondered, why would men hate Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about that? Why would you hate Jesus? I mean, is he the thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy? Is he out to get something from you when he walked into town? Did you say, okay, look out, board up the windows, here he comes. Is he like a bunch of marauders when he and his twelve disciples came into the town sort of like a um, first century Attila the Hun, coming to root loot and rape and pillage? I mean, we can understand why you would hate someone like that, but what are you going to say in Jesus' case? You know, here he comes. Get all those sick people off the street. He's liable to heal them. You know, get that hungry guy inside. There's no telling. And for heaven's sake, keep him out of the cemetery. I mean, do you understand? Why would you be upset with Jesus? Why would you hate someone like him? And why would they hate his disciples? Now, I know that sometimes those who call themselves Christians have given men many reasons to hate them, you understand. But if they're truly following in the steps of Christ, if they're truly seeking to emulate And to follow the teaching of Christ. If they're truly Christ-like, why would you hate Christians? I mean, if you've got to live next door to somebody, wouldn't you rather live next door to a Christian than a junkie? I mean, you got the choice. If you're a king and you would like to have your, your kingdom populated by people, do you want it populated by a bunch of drunks, thieves, murderers? Or would you rather have your kingdom populated by Christians? People who keep the law, pay their taxes, pray for their king. I mean, come on. And yet, down through the centuries, Christians have been hunted down like dogs. The off-scouring of all things. Crucified, beheaded burned at the stake, down the list we go. Why? What is the source of this hostility? The source of this opposition? Well, I believe that we find the answer in what Jesus is saying in verse 24 and 25, that first of all, they hate the disciple because they hate the master. The more the disciple is like the hated master, the more the disciple is hated. Now, if you figure out then why they hate Jesus, you'll find out why they hate the disciple. That makes sense? Okay, let's go there. Why then do they hate Jesus? Well, we see there's no logical reason, you understand, why you would hate him. But what is the reason? What's the source of this opposition? Would you hold your finger here and go to John 15? I believe Jesus Himself gives us the answer very clearly. In John chapter 15, that last night that Jesus was with His disciples. Look in verse 18. John 15 verse 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, why did Jesus, why was he hated? What he's telling us here is the reason is because he is not of this world, this cosmos, this world system. He is, in every sense of the word, an alien An E.T., if you will. It's interesting that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus will say something like this. You're from beneath. I'm from above. You know, I came from my Father. I came from heaven into this world. And now he tells his disciples, you're not of the world either because I've chosen you. I've elected you out of the world. You're part of a different system, a different kingdom. Now, now you begin to get a little insight then into why this world hates Jesus. Just like when you put a foreign tissue in your body. You know, one of the problems with transplanting organs is that your body attacks that foreign tissue. It sees it as the enemy. It rallies the antibodies and they all attack. In essence, if we think of the world as an organism, when Christ came into this world, He came into it as something completely antithetical to the nature of the world itself. And the world, because men belong to it, they must hate it. They must attack it. Because it's the very opposite of the way they are and the way they think. Now let me try to put some... We say down here where the rubber meets the road. What do you mean that it, Christ came and He's opposite the way the world thinks. Well, the world is nothing more than the visible representation of Satan's kingdom. That's all it is. Men out here in the world, use it. Why, why do they do? You want to see how the devil works, just look at the world. The principles that make it tick, that make the world go round. What, what are they? Well, it's the same principles that Satan used when he says, I want to ascend up to be like God. I will, I will, I will. The idea of self-exaltation, the idea of self-glorification, the idea of self-gratification, that's what makes the world tick. Paul wrote the Ephesian saints and says, you used to walk just like folks in the world. After the lust of your own flesh, after the prince of the power of the air, the devil, in other words, you just... Did and reflected the very thinking of Satan himself, and you see it all around you. To be happy, well, you only go around once, and you got to grab for all the gusto. All right, that's how the world thinks. What will make you happy? How much can I get? How much can I attain? How much can things be centered around me? And it's all a lie. You understand, this is the big lie of the devil. That, that the most unhappy person on earth is the most self-centered person on earth. I mean, I, I constantly, I, I'm befuddled by the act of suicide. I really am. Because, I mean, logically, if if I wanted to commit suicide... Wouldn't it make sense to go find some poor old Joe out here? You know, he's got to charge from some trench into a machine gun nest. Certain death. And you don't want to die. Well, why don't, If I want to commit suicide, why don't I find somebody in a situation like that and say, oh, Joe, now I'll take your place. I mean, I want to die. And you don't. And what you're about to have to do is, you know, to result in certain death. So why don't you just let me take your place? Wouldn't that be logical? Find some guy that's got to do something terribly dangerous and say, I'll go, I'll do it, because I want to die anyway. But the person that commits suicide is all wrapped up in himself and nothing else. It's the most self-centered, selfish act a man can possibly create. And he's miserable, because he's all wrapped up in himself. Satan's definition of life is how many people can you boss? That's what makes you great. How much stuff can you obtain? How many lust of the flesh can you satisfy? That's the lie of the devil. But that's what makes this world go round. Love makes the world go round. Oh no. Oh no. And into this self-centered world came one from the very bosom of the Father who said, Life is not in how much you can get, but it consists in how much can you give. That the blessed man is not how much can he get, how much can he give, it's better To give than to receive. It's better to serve than to rule. Do do you understand? Into this world came one who says no, life. Life is to be found in God as the center of your universe, not in yourself. You ever, I, I remember seeing a cartoon one time this fellow was sitting at a train crossing, and there was a train going around it, uh, across the crossing. And so he couldn't see what was on the other side. But he's sitting there, one little car all by himself on one side, and then you're seeing on the other side, there's a ton of cars coming the other way, sidewalk to sidewalk, and a side over there saying, one way, the other way. In other words, <clears throat> you understand, as soon as that train clears the track, here he is facing this onslaught of vehicles, because he's going the wrong way. Up a one-way street. I can think of no better description of what Christ came into this world to do and what he calls us to do than go up the wrong way of a wrong way. And no, in fact, it's the right way. But according to the world, it's the wrong way. That we are to go against the flow. Against the stream. Now, not against it just because we want to be against something. But because we have found that what he says is true, that he is life, life is in him. That the way to blessing and happiness is exactly and precisely as our Lord taught us. It's enough, he says, for the disciple to be like his master. He's not asking you to do anything that he didn't do, live any way that he didn't live. It's okay just to be like him. And that, of course, is the goal. Of every true, genuine believer. Well, number one, I'm I'm going to give you three reasons why the world hated Jesus. That's the first one. Everything about him was so antithetical to its thinking. So opposite its ways. Secondly, the problem is, is that he demands that we bow to him as our absolute Lord. Lord. Now you see that over in Luke 19 where he gave the little parable about the man going away into the far country to receive a kingdom. And his citizens saying, we will not have that man to rule over us. And that's exactly the cry of men today. We will not have him telling us what to do. We will not bow the knee. Now now we may give him lip service. We may show up at church on Sunday and sing about him a little bit. We may nod our head to the confessions and so forth. But we will never bow the knee of our heart To Jesus Christ. And unfortunately that is a non-negotiable item. Jesus said if you don't love me more than the stuff, your possessions that you own, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not love me more than you love your father and your mother, you can't be my disciple. If you do not love me more than you love life itself, you cannot be my disciple. He demands the supreme place in your heart and your life. He will settle for nothing else, nothing less. And so you begin to understand then why men that we call wicked sinners—I mean, the what is it? Barry, your term. Uh, men of the baser sort—that's one of Barry's famous uh, sayings. I'm going to have my Barry sayings, just like you've got your Webisms. Men of the baser sort. Why do they hate Jesus? Because He threatens them. He threatens their way of life. you understand? He's going to take away their freedom to sin. There was that slogan, you you and I who were around when Barry Goldwater ran for the presidency way back there in 1964. Had a slogan, campaign slogan, in your heart, you know he's right. Well, apparently they did because nobody hardly voted for the guy. But anyway, uh, that is the truth when it comes to Jesus. In their heart, they know he's right. Look over again in John 15. You're still there? John 15. Look in verse 22. A little later. <clears throat> Explaining again why the world hates him and why he'll hate, they'll hate his disciples. John fifteen twenty two. If I had not come and spoken unto them... They had not had sin. In other words, their sin would have been hidden. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no other man had had done, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. You understand what Jesus is saying here. If I hadn't come into this world, then they would have gone along just fine. You know, all self-righteous folks they were. But Jesus coming into the world stripped them of their self-righteousness, exposed them. I mean, let's go back to Jesus' encounter with the scribes and Pharisees. Here's this man, well, in one case, a woman bound for 18 years. Couldn't even stand up straight. And they brought her to him to see if he'd heal her on the Sabbath day. Jesus said, what if you'd go out into your pen and you'd loose your donkey on the Sabbath? You got more pity, more mercy for a dumb animal than you got for this woman. And that it's constantly those kinds of, of confrontations where Jesus shows very plainly these guys aren't they're nothing like God. They claim to be law keepers. You pay your tithe of mint and a you in exact proportion, but you omit the later, later matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. Don't you understand that without things like mercy, your sacrifices are worthless. And so Jesus constantly was showing that these men who prided themselves of being the great Pharisees, the separate from others, a little holier than everybody else, were nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. They were nothing like God. And they hated Him. He was always showing them up. He was just always showing them for who they really were. Stripping their cloak away and exposing their sin. Oh my. Now, it's no wonder you understand why Christianity today, for the most part, has no effect in this world, is because it is so watered down that none of these claims, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, are even being propagated anymore. I mean, I stood amazed about three weeks ago. What we kept Clark to, uh, director of the Pontiac Rescue Mission to a dinner in Pontiac uh, where the governor of Michigan, Governor Engler, was speaking. And, uh, nice banquet hall. We had a perfunctory chicken dinner and again. We were sitting towards the back. And, uh, they got time for the dinner to start, so they called on this fellow to come up and some pastor to come of some such church. And everybody catch what denomination. They were on no the white collars around his neck came up to give the invocation over the food for the week to get started eating. And then he gets up and he prays to to the father of oh, somebody, some Hebrew term apparently for Abraham, to the father of the man from Nazareth, and to the father of the Muhammad of Islam. We give that. In other words, cover all the bases. Kent said to me after that, he says, you know, I didn't even... He says, you dare not close your eyes upon a man praying like that. Don't tell him what he's liable to do with your eyes closed. You better keep your eyes open somebody prays like that. Well, that's good advice. But notice how foreign that is to the claims of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying is the fact that these are the non-negotiable points which give rise to the hostility. And the more that we are like Christ, the more... That hostility rages. Now, that raises a question. Why are we not persecuted? Why are we not opposed? Well, perhaps it is because of our lukewarmness, because of our distance in appearance to Christ. But uh, there are special oppositions. In other words, our opposition is not quite like it used to be. There, Satan is more subtle today in many areas, but be very clear, it is still there. Men's hearts have not changed. They're still wolves. They eat sheep. And so that brings our final point here this morning, back in Matthew 10. What are we to do? What is our response to opposition? We've talked about the certainty of opposition. We've talked about the reason for opposition. How do we respond? How then should we then live then? Uh, You know, to mutilate Francis Schaeffer's question. How then do we live? How are we supposed to live? Well, I want you just to notice a few things. First of all, back in Matthew 10, verse 16, if you're a sheep put in the midst of wolves, uh, the last thing I'd have you do is go to button. I, I wouldn't try to physically attack the wolves. You know what I mean? Sheep who butt wolves don't live long. They're asking for it. And notice that Jesus, when he says this, when he gives us this picture that is so vivid of a sheep in the midst of a wolf pack, his instruction is to be shrewd and to be harmless. Use your head and give no reason for the wolves to eat you. If they eat you, let it be without cause. Let it be without reason. You remember Jesus in that John 15 passage goes on to say that it might be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Oh yes, they hated me, but I didn't give them a reason to. In other words, the Christian is to live as quiet and peaceable and as godly a life as he possibly can live on this earth. Giving no reason for anyone to logically hate them. So that if they are persecuted, if they are hated, they are hated for no other reason than that they follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verse 23, he talks about fleeing. Now that doesn't sound very manly. It does sound sort of sheeply. Fleeing. You persecuted in one city, what do you do? You flee to another. That's interesting that this was precisely what the early church did. You read in Acts 8 when the hostility, the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, what they do? They scattered like ants to the four winds, took the gospel with them everywhere they went. You read the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Over and over again, he'd go into a city, preach the gospel. Persecution break out, what do he do? He went on to the next city. He didn't stay there and he didn't have a death wish. He was not. He didn't have a martyr's complex. You know, here I am, beat me, kill me. And I think that is good instruction, that if we find ourselves in this kind of situation, we're not to, as it were, to have some sort of death wish, to desire hurt and harm. We are indeed to avoid it as much as is humanly possible. But the main instruction is in verse 26. We must not fear them. Now, we acknowledge they have power. We acknowledge that they have far more power than we have. We're not fools. But at the same time, we acknowledge that there is another with far more power than they have. Though all they can do is that they can kill the body. That's it. That's all they can do. You say, well, what's worse than that? There's another who can destroy both soul and body in hell and that for eternity. Oh, there's something far worse than physical death. And they don't have the power of that second death. So in other words, the instruction is fear God. Respect Him. Acknowledge Him. I Oh my, we see that with Martin Luther, don't we, in that wonderful hymn? A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And the thing I appreciate Luther, about Luther is that this was not merely some academic thing with him. I, I think there was every expectation that that man was never going to live very long on this earth. Now he managed to I live a ripe old age, but um, as we'd say, he was like a dead man. And he wrote that wonderful third verse, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, for oh, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. But verse 26 and 27 tells us that we must confront this world. And we do it by what we have Been told in darkness, speaking in light, what we have had whispered in our ears, we shout from the housetops. We proclaim this message of Jesus Christ. That is our only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. It is this word of truth that Christ gives us. That's the only thing that we've got to conquer with. The only weapon. The only reliance, the only tool that God has placed in our hands. And that, he says, you must do. On the one hand, you'll say, if I just keep my mouth shut, I'd keep myself out of a lot of trouble. I remember a prophet like that. You can go back and read about Jeremiah saying, God, you know, every time I open my mouth and make everybody mad, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And then he says, God's word with me was like a fire in my bones and I couldn't help but speak so it is with the genuine believer of Jesus Christ, my friend. We must never water down, never modify, never quench the ministry of Christ's Word. And what does it mean? Oh, I've got a lot of things written down here. I've got to stop. What does it mean if we are put to death? Does it mean that our God is not able? Does it mean that we're not loved by our God? Well, consider Peter and James in the first chapters of the book of Acts. Well, actually in Acts chapter 12. Peter and James were both arrested by Herod. James had his head cut off. Peter was delivered from prison by an angel. Do, do you understand the same God who delivered Peter could have delivered James? Then does this mean that God didn't love James as much as he loved Peter? Well, of course not. In other words, the fact that all of this befell them was no indication that God could not have spared their lives, nor was it any indication that God did not love them. In fact, that's Paul's point at the end of Romans 8, that there's nothing that will sever us, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Death, tribulation, famine, all of these things that, you know, if I love my children, I try to keep those things from my kids. But in the case of God, He brings these things upon us for our good and for the good of His people. I'll close with just a personal note. We had a student down at the school, one of the graduating students. There are, let's see, six guys that are graduating. All six of them have places to go. Two of the young guys will be pastoring churches over in the very, very poor backwards area of Mexico known as Guerrero. One of those students had been doing his year of practice in Guerrero and uh, wasn't there the first couple of days we were back, and everyone was getting worried about him. Uh, A lot of things can happen over there. And uh, on Wednesday, we were greatly relieved when he showed up. He had been sick and sort of been stranded back in the backcountry and couldn't make the trip. His name was Gonzalo. He's about 21, 22 years old be graduating, or should have graduated yesterday. The reason I bring his name up is because you remember about three years ago, I told you about a man who was killed, beaten, died in one of the villages of Guerrero. Um, This man was not a Christian, however, he was letting a Christian group meet in his home. The Roman Catholic priest in this village went to the mayor and got him to send a couple of his thugs over to this guy's house. They drug him outside and just beat the tar out of him. He managed to last about three months before he died, and in those three months he became a Christian in in that time. And uh, so you would not say he was a martyr in the technical sense of the word, in that he wasn't. but, But he was being beaten because he was allowing this Christian evangelical group to meet in his home. You remember the story? This is three or four years ago. Gonzalo is his son, about to graduate and to go back to Guerrero, to pastor. You do know the old adage, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And there you see it in action. Our brothers and sisters in Mexico, many of them, they do face physical opposition. It's dangerous in some of those places. Men do hate them. Men hate us if you're living for Christ. They hate you just as much. We may be in a little bit different situation whether or not he's free to bring that hatred out into the open. But if you are Christ, you will be hated by the world. We see that in our media, in our attacks on Christianity as being narrow-minded bigots, hate crimes for saying anything against such groups as homosexuals and so forth. I would not be a bit surprised to see the day come when we shall indeed face some sort of physical persecution for our faith. What will you do? Here's the instructions. Here's the manual. Here's what to do. We never shut up. That's the one thing. What we've heard in the ear, we shout it, we publish it from the rooftop. May God help us in that endeavor. Well, we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table this morning. And I tell you, every single time I come back from Mexico, the first time we partake of the Lord's table after that, it always has a special significance for me. Because it reminds me, as I need to be reminded, that though we are a small group here, body of believers in Olive Branch, Mississippi, we are in fact part of a much, much larger assembly, the General Assembly the church universal. That there are bonds between us and we we sort of have our immediate family here, but oh my, we've got this big extended family out there scattered across this globe. And I've just got to rub shoulders with some of your brothers that are living far off. Some of your sisters that are way down south. But a wonderful opportunity. And the thing I'm always struck with is that we are so different. We look different. We eat different things. We talk differently. Everything, we're so different. And yet, we are so alike. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we found Jesus to be the answer. We're sinners, condemned, unclean, vile. And we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We look to Him as our Savior as our Lord, as our Master. And we're seeking to be made more and more like Him every day that goes by. And so I shake hands with my brethren down there and call them brother, and they call me brother. They love me and I love them. Oh my, what a blessing to have been joined to this body, the very body of Christ, by an operation of the Holy Spirit of God. I know of nothing else that makes much difference in this life. I don't know where your heart is today. Whether it's a wolf or a sheep's heart. But it's one or the other. And the wolf doesn't need to just make a decision to become a sheep. Or to become a vegetarian. The wolf needs a transformation. Transformation a new heart needs the spirit of God that's what you need if you're without Christ today I point you to him I say seek him seek him where he is seated at the right hand of God you don't need a priest between you and him no pastor I'm a pastor I I say I'm a pointer that's about all I'm good for i am just pointing. you I'll point you to the answer I'll point you to the person where life is, but my friend, I can't dish it out. Seek Him. Seek Him with all your heart, and you'll surely find Him. Come to Him as a hell deserving sinner, and you'll find life and forgiveness at His hand through trusting in His shed blood. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we now seek to partake of the ordinance that Christ Himself gave us to remind us of that which is so central to our faith, the fact of his death and his burial and his resurrection. Thank you, Father, that our faith is not founded on fiction or fables or even, Father, good teaching. It is founded in the facts of our Lord's death and his resurrection. Thank you that we have a firm rock to rest our weary souls upon a Savior who gave himself for sinners, who received sinners, who associated with sinners, a friend of sinners. May we come to him, Father, that we might find a remedy for our sin. May we come, we who are sin afflicted, to this great physician who can cleanse us from the penalty of sin from the power of sin and ultimately, Father, even from the presence of sin. Bless us as we seek to remember Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.